So in the book of Romans, Paul has written to the city of Rome. And now today we think of Rome and we might be thinking of kind of the, the center of Catholicism. We think of the, the high church where the clergy and the priests and the, you know, the very you know, extravagant buildings and the Pope and, and all those kind of things. But at this point, in the city of Rome, it was not known for being holy at all. And even today, Rome is not known for being a, a holy city apart from religion. Um, Rome at, in that day was kind of a very um, sinful city. And yet in the midst of that, God had planted a church by the word of God impacting individuals we believe that met at Pentecost, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from Peter and the other disciples who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they went home back to Rome, those that lived in Rome, they had the gospel implanted in them. And I love that because we oftentimes think of the church as being a building or a place where we gather, but the church, it, it grows based on the confession of our faith that we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation. And so wherever we go, we take the church with us, whether we realize that or not. And so Paul is writing to this church that he's heard about. He's never been there himself. He's never met most of the people there. Some he will see towards the end of the book, he has met and he does know them by name, uh, but he's just crossed paths with them. But he started by explaining in chapter one, the first half, who he was writing to, why he was writing, explaining to them that he was writing to all who are in Rome, Romans chapter seven, verse one, beloved of God called saints. So he's writing to the saints in the church of Rome. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing as a representative of God to them. And he says, I, I thank God for you. And he tells them in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. And so Paul is writing to the Roman church to tell them, hey, I'm writing to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not writing to you about my own agenda. I'm not writing to you about my soapbox, the things that I would like to preach on for days and days. I'm writing to you about Jesus Christ. And I, I have some things I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. But since I've not been able to come to you, instead of just you know sulking and being upset that I haven't been there yet, I will send you a letter through someone that you can read it and, and read everything that I wanted to tell you anyway. And I think oftentimes we think, hey, because I can't go see so-and-so, I can't have any impact. I can't bless them. I can't teach them or encourage them. But Paul saw this as an opportunity to just write down what he was going to tell them anyway and send it to them. And I love that because we don't send letters anymore, many of us. And yet for my wife's birthday, you know what she got from her mom? She got a handwritten letter of several pages just recounting her life up to this point and just remembering God's mercies throughout her growth stages and funny stories and just imparting to her things that she'll be able to get out of her box years later, Lord willing, if she outlives her mom and she doesn't get to talk to her anymore, one day she's going to have a letter that she's going to read and be able to remember what her mom wanted to share with her, her heart. And I got to sit down and read it and just experience a little bit of their relationship because I know them, but only from talking to them. I don't know what they went through before Kelly met me. So Paul, in the same way, he's sharing his heart and the heart of the gospel with these people 
by writing them a letter. And he, the theme of this book is the, the power of God to salvation to all who believe. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so he's revealing the righteousness of God through this letter. So he's already talked about, and we looked at the second half of chapter one last week. He's talked about, you know, first of all, he starts about saying that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And then he gives the backdrop, the dark backdrop drop of human unrighteousness. So we see God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. And then Paul's going to start before he shares the gospel in Romans. He's going to talk about the unrighteousness of man. And he takes a long time to give it to us so that, he know, so that we know specifically what the unrighteousness of God looks or the unrighteousness of man looks like to God. Because oftentimes we get a little bit confused about what is sin and what's not because we, number one, either see, well, the obvious sinners, the people that commit sin that's socially unacceptable, like killing your neighbor or stealing something. I mean, there are some obvious things. But then this week, he's going to turn the corner a little bit because he's writing this letter. And you can imagine the people, if you were with us last week, that were reading some of these things going, yeah, those people are unrighteous. Man, they, they've got, they're messed up. Those, I mean, what? No, I don't do those things. And then he turns the corner after talking about the obvious heathen, the people that reject God's counsel. He turns the corner, he talks about the hypocrite. So in chapter two, he starts to reveal to the moralist, okay, so maybe you don't do all the things I listed in chapter one, but what about your inward life? What does your life look like on the inside? It doesn't depend on what it looks like on the outside. So he says there in chapter 2, well, first of all, I want to start in chapter 1, verse 28, because it says there that the result of them rejecting God, not following him, suppressing the truth about him, for the reason, you know, because they chose to worship the creature instead of the creator, the result of that. God gave them up to their vile passions. All the things that they worship, all the things that they decide to do with their lives, he says, you know what? If you're going to reject me, I'm going to give you over to what you do want. Because when we reject God, if you, uh, you got, you've heard the song, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That's what God says. You've got you to either worship me or you'll worship something else. And so he said there, in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And then he stated some specific things that were errors that they made. And because of those errors, there's consequences. And then in verse 28, he goes on to say, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And because the things that they did were, that were not fitting were these things, verse 29, they're filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy. They murder. They're full of strife, deceit. In other words, they try to deceive. They are full of evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. They're proud or they're prideful. They boast, they are inventors of evil things, they're disobedient to parents, undiscerning, 
They don't know the difference between good and bad. That you can't trust them. They're untrustworthy, unloving. They don't forgive. People that forgive are uh, showing a quality or a character attribute of God. So to not know God means that you're not going to forgive people. They're unmerciful, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. So to reject God's counsel, his rules, his laws, his commandments means that you're going to follow after your own heart. And, you know, we watch a lot of movies, Disney movies even, and they'll say, just do whatever's in your heart. Well, Jeremiah, the prophet, writes that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? So to follow our own heart means that we're, we're following a law, but it's just based on whatever we feel at the moment. I don't know about you guys, but there are moments where I feel that I should do things that I definitely should not do because there'll be sin against God. And so he gives all these things to show the depravity of man. And then he knows that in his audience, the people he's writing to, there's a group of people that are going, well, I don't do any of those things. They're what we would call self-righteous. They base their salvation or they're going to heaven or they're being approved by God based on all the things that they don't do. You know, I don't, I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. But the problem with that is that God doesn't measure, measure your and I righteousness or your, your and I's right standing before him based on what we don't do. Christianity is not a list of things we don't do. It is what we do do. So what the funny thing is, is then he turns the corner. I finally got in there, chapter two, verse one. And he says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. He said, anybody in the audience that's listening to this going, well, I don't do that. And you're judging all those that do do that. He says, it's inexcusable for you, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you practice the same things. I say it this way. Have you ever noticed, maybe someone you live close to or someone you work with, um, you see them day to day and they do things that frustrate you. And you know that they're sin. They're obvious sins against God. And so you get upset with them. You start getting, in your mind, righteously indignant about their sin. I do this constantly, and I struggle with it. And the Lord's really been showing me even this morning how much this is me. I'm a Pharisee. I don't, well, I don't do that. You shouldn't do that. And the Lord's saying, do you really not do that? No, you, inwardly you do that. You just don't do the outward action. And so, you know, sometimes I think we're apt to notice the things that other people struggle with, that we struggle with too, because we struggle with them, we notice them in others a lot more than we do in ourselves. And so Paul says, you, it's inexcusable for you to be this way. Verse two, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So God doesn't judge partially. In other words, he's a good judge. He, does, he judges based on his standard and it never changes. And he doesn't look at one person and say, well, the standard's different for you because you're my cousin or, or whatever. He, everyone gets the same rules. Everyone gets the same judgment. 
And uh, I love that because he doesn't play favorites. Verse three, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, so-and-so does it, so what's the big deal if I do it? And God says, I'm not comparing you with that guy. I'm not comparing you with that person. I'm comparing you to what my standard is. And so in verse three, he says, you know, you will, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same things, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? It's like your kids sometimes. Not all of you have kids, but you have siblings at least. And maybe you get in trouble for doing something. And so rather than fessing up and saying, you're right, I did it, you go, well, they did it. Well, you're not saying that you didn't do it. You're just basically pointing to somebody else and saying, well, you need to deal with them first. And when you do that, you're trying to escape getting caught or maybe throw some dust in the air so your parents kind of lose track of who they were punishing in the first place. And the Lord says, don't worry about them. I'll get them later. You, you need to deal with your own sin. And that's what he's telling these here. Verse four, and when we start to compare ourselves with ourselves later in the gospel, or later in some of Paul's letters, he says, if you compare yourselves with others, you basically fool yourself into thinking that their righteousness is what you should be measured according to. And God says, no, my righteousness is what righteousness means. So he says, when you judge others, verse four, let me read verse three and then we'll go to verse four. Verse three, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness, his forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is what leads you to repentance? God is good to us. And I can say that because I know that because when I was born, all the way up till the day that I accepted salvation, I was sinning. There were things that I did that I sinned against God. And in his goodness, he did not strike me down the moment I sinned the first time. That's his goodness. He gives us time to repent. Now, but here's the other thing. When I realized that I was full of sin and I needed Jesus Christ for salvation, he revealed that to me. He was good, not just to not punish me, but to let me know that my punishment could be taken on the cross on Jesus Christ and I could be forgiven. How cool is that? That is goodness. That is what goodness is. But then, after I accepted Jesus Christ, today, I'm sitting here on this stool and before I ever got up here to teach, I sinned at some point during the morning. There were sins that I knew I did that I had to be forgiven of. And there are sins that I did not know that I did, but they were still sins. And so God's punishment still is just to punish me from the sins, even the stuff that I don't realize I do. And so because of that, his forbearance is important because even though I sinned today, he didn't strike me down with lightning. He didn't judge me. He judged those sins on the cross. Now that means I still need to repent when I do realize I've sinned. But then his long suffering, he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and his long suffering? So he's dealt with our past sin, 
but he didn't judge us immediately. He gave us time to repent. He's dealing with our current sin, but he didn't judge us immediately. He gave us time to repent. And then he knows, because he's outside of time, he knows how you're going to sin tomorrow. He knows how you're going to sin the next day. He knows how you're going to sin the next day. So in his wisdom, he could put us down now so that we don't create a path of destruction in the future, but he is long-suffering. He is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would receive everlasting life. So his patience with us is a continual grace that he does for us, not judging us, but forgiving us. And I love that because all of those things are the riches that keep you and I going day to day. So we can, if we're not careful, despise those riches on others that he's bestowing upon us. So he says there that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Verse five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But, that's the contrast. He's saying those who with patience continue in the faith, there will be glory, honor, and immortality. Verse eight, but to those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be indignation and wrath. There will be tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now I want to stop there. I know I'm mid-sentence, but notice that. To all those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath is stored up, Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Remember, this whole section is the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness. But remember also that in chapter 1, verse 17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he says it's the power of God, verse 16, for salvation from these things for everyone who believes. For, the, for those who believe, salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first to the Greek. For all those who do not believe and disobey, there will be punishment and tribulation and indignation and wrath to the Jew first and to the Greek. So everybody's even in the sight of God. And so Paul goes to the depths to make sure he describes this because whether you know this or not, there are people who go to church every week who are going, hey, I do this and I don't do this and I do this and I don't do this. And, and they're not anywhere close to salvation unless they are trusting Jesus Christ and believing in Him for salvation. Not measuring my good works against my bad, but measuring God's good work of giving us Jesus Christ against all of our unrighteousness that we've done in the past, in the present, and in the future. We have to trust Him through the whole thing, through continuing. So, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. So go to 2 Samuel and chapter 11. Because in there, there's an example 
of someone who had trusted the Lord and then at some point stopped trusting the Lord and made a disobedient action against the Lord and the Lord had to bring him through it. Everyone knows about the sin of David when he lay with Bathsheba. He basically stole a married man's wife while the married man was off to battle. And it says there in 2 Samuel that basically David, in the time when most kings go out to battle, conquering the land and dealing with his enemies, instead of dealing with his enemies, he decided to take a vacation. And while everyone else of his kingdom that was in the army went off to war, David stayed at home. He didn't go to battle. He didn't lead. He kind of took a vacation when he shouldn't have. And because he wasn't battling the enemies of the Lord, he got caught up in sin. Because he, one night while he was relaxing, he went up on the roof of his house and he was looking over his kingdom. And he just so happened to see this woman bathing on the top roof of her house. And when he saw her, he called for her to come to his house. So he sent his servants to go gather her, bring him to his house. And because his, her husband was off to battle, he could do this. So when she came to his house, he, sit, he basically took advantage of her. Now, we don't know if it was consensual or not. It doesn't really imply that. But it was another man's wife. So it doesn't matter whether it was consensual or not. It was sin. It wasn't his wife. And it was someone else's wife. So in that sin, David commits adultery. And then uh, she leaves, goes home, and he goes on about his business like nothing happened. And during that, basically, um, he can seemingly feel like he got away with it. But he didn't because even though no one else knew, who, who did know? God. God knew. Now, David had trusted the Lord with his life up until this point. And I'm sure there were other sins that he had committed, but this was a biggie. This was something that was going to affect more than just him. And so David has the choice at this point to either confess it or conceal it. Now sin makes us want to just hide it so we don't have to deal with the consequences. But God loves us enough to sometimes reveal the sin in our lives so we can get right with him. But sometimes when God reveals sin to us, we're quick to judge other people and try to avoid dealing with the, own, the sin in our own lives. So what God did was he sent a prophet to David. A year later, he gave him an entire year to repent on his own. But David didn't. And then he tried to cover it up. He even ended up having Uriah the Hittite, who was Bathsheba's husband, murdered. So what happens is God sends Nathan the prophet to David in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and came to him and said to him. So Nathan's going to present this problem to David. And it's basically a parable to hopefully open David's eyes to what he has done. But he's going to give him a parable. Nathan says to him, there were two men in one city. One rich and the other one was poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. 
And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one of the wayfaring men who had come to him. Sorry, verse four. A traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So basically this parable is revealing a story of this man who had a lamb and this man who had many lamb. A, a, a traveler came to this rich man and said, hey, I need to stay with you. And so the man said, no problem. And so he's got to feed him. That's what you do when you're being hospitable. So he's going to make him a, a, a meal. But instead of making him a meal out of the lambs that he had, which were plenty, he grabbed this poor man's lamb who was very close to him and he slaughtered it, prepared it, and he fed it to the traveler. Now, he, he did this even though he had as many lambs as he wanted. And so David, being a shepherd, having the heart of a shepherd, knowing what it takes to raise up a lamb, to take care of it, to feed it your own food, to, to stay up with it, make sure wolves don't get it. He's highly invested in lambs. He spent lots of time out in the field. And so he gets angry, verse 5. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man in the parable. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then David said to, Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. My point is, is that David was a man of God who thought he was doing good. And then he sinned. And because of his sin, it caused there to be all these consequences in his life. And when he did not repent, the Lord sent to him a prophet to say, hey, I know about what you did. You need to repent. You need to deal with your sin. But he, he told him a parable about lambs to see how David would respond. And notice that David responded angrily. He couldn't stand the fact that somebody was getting away with stealing another man's sheep. And yet he himself had stole another man's wife. The law did not command a person who had stole a sheep to be put to death. The law commanded, I just read it a couple days ago in my reading, the law commanded that if you stole someone's sheep and you were found out that you had to restore it and four more, or maybe three more, you had to restore four lambs for one stolen. You didn't have to be put to death. But the punishment for adultery was death. And so David wasn't dealing with the sin in his own life. And so when he heard about somebody else sinning, he dealt with it way more strongly than he needed to because he wouldn't punish the own disobedience in his life, but he was willing to punish disobedience in others. So turn back 
to Romans because what Paul's trying to tell these men and these women that are in the Roman church is that just because you think you're righteous doesn't mean that you are. Deal with the sin in your own life, even though you think that you're good because of your religion, but inwardly, God knows your heart. He wants to deal with you on an individual basis. And I hope this is making sense because basically we can all get pretty indignant about the people that are obvious, socially unacceptable sinners. But I think sometimes uh, we need to remember that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And if you've had the light of God shown on your heart and you know Jesus personally, then ultimately uh, we need to deal with ourselves stronger than we do with others. Verse 12 says in Romans 2, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Remember we said in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the just shall live by faith. I think it was 18. Verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And so to disobey the law means that you're not being faithful and you won't be justified. Now, that doesn't mean that your salvation will be taken away. In David's case, he sinned with Bathsheba. He repented ultimately because God kept pursuing him. He said, you're right, Lord, I'm sorry. He repented, but there were still consequences to him disobeying the Lord's command. He told him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he said, because of your disobedience, because of your sin with Bathsheba, the, the sword will not depart from your family. For the rest of several generations, basically there was strife and quarreling because his sons and his daughters didn't respect him because of his sin with Bathsheba, because of his disloyalty to the Lord's commands. So though the Lord will forgive you of sin, and he will if you'll repent, there are always still consequences that keep coming later. He won't necessarily shield you from the consequences. And so he loves us and he, he wants us to be forgiven, but we also have to realize that nobody sins into themselves. We don't live in a, in a, in a bubble where our, what we do with our lives doesn't affect somebody else. <clears throat> but God judges us based on what we know. He, you know. People always ask, well, what about the guy that lives on the island all by himself and he's never heard about Jesus? And my answer to that is always that God is completely just. And if they've only known a little bit about God, he's going to judge them based on the little bit that they did know. And so verse, um, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not know the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In other words, that thought again coming up, don't compare yourselves with others, compare yourself with Jesus. For those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God will judge them based on that. For those that do, he'll base it on that. And, um, you know, oftentimes we, we kind of try to justify what we do or what we have done based on what other people have done or in, in our minds gotten away with. And so what the Lord says is, I'm going to judge 
And I'm going to judge not just the outward action, but the secrets of the heart. According to my gospel, according to Jesus. So turn one more uh, place in Hebrews chapter 4. We've talked a lot about the judgment of God this morning. But I want to go to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 because I want to point out that God's not unaware of the heaviness of his judgment, the heaviness of his wrath. And he desires that our word would actually pierce through those hard spots in our hearts and get past the religion to what's actually going on inside. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this. It says, The word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the ultimate thing is, is that we will give an account to what we've done with our life. We're accountable to our Creator. And people want to reject that. But it's a reality. And so the reality is, is that whatever you guys, whatever I do with what I know about Jesus, I'll be accountable for. And whatever I do rejecting what he's told me to do, I'll be accountable for that too. So that's heavy. But don't stop there because verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he's not unaware of the temptations that you and I go through. Verse 16, he says, Because we have this high priest, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I think what happens is we get caught up in feeling like God expects us to be perfect. And so God gives us something or he teaches us something and then we start to live by it. We do pretty good for a little while. And then we, then we fail. We stop paying so much attention we kind of put it on autopilot. And we get into sin. Whether it's pride whether it's an outward action, whether it's hating somebody, whatever the sin is that you have a hard time with. You know, maybe it's idle talk. You know, that's, that's one I struggle with. But I think sometimes we think that now that I'm saved, I should be perfect and I'm never gonna screw up. And I think what the Lord's trying to show us is if you think that, you might fall to the temptation of, well, if I'm supposed to be perfect, then if I'm not perfect, then God's not pleased with me and basically it's not going to be as good of a relationship anymore. And what the Lord's trying to show us is rather than try to build ourselves up to the point where we think that we either can't screw up or we won't screw up, we'll start to put an expectation on our lives that's unrealistic. The Lord's saying, hey, I know that you're going to sin tomorrow. It's okay. It's not okay because you still need Jesus to forgive you of that but don't grow so hard to the fact that you're going to sin that you start denying that you ever do sin. You ever heard somebody that say, well, I don't sin? I, I've, believe it or not, I've heard people say that. They think that they are right in the sight of God because they just, they don't sin. 
Well, number one, they probably don't know what sin is. And number two, they don't realize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there are people, just like in that day, that because they follow so many rules and commandments of God, they start to measure that up to what they're saved by. And what Paul's saying here is, that can't save you. Because many times, even though we obey the commandments of God, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. So even in that, we're not justified. And so I love this because in Hebrews chapter 4, he's giving us this, seeing that we have someone who is our high priest, who has forgiven us of our sin, who is continuing to intercede for us right at the throne of God. Number one, know that you're going to still sin. And number two, just apologize, repent. Let the Lord deal with your heart. He says, there, there's no creation... He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we, may, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I think what the biggest point I want to make this morning is that when we think that our religion will save us, when we think doing or not doing things will save us, we stop going to Jesus for forgiveness. The, the, the Pharisees didn't go to Jesus for forgiveness because they thought they were fine on their own. And we even as Christians can start doing that if we're not careful forgetting where we came from. And so uh, let me ask you this morning, um, how are you doing in this? Are you still living a lifestyle of repentance? Are you still uh, willing to ask the Lord to forgive you? Are you still willing to apologize when you mess up at home? I struggle with this. I, I know what I'm supposed to do, and when I don't do it, I get upset because I feel like I should know better, and yet, even though I know better, I still mess up. And the Lord's saying, that's fine. You're going to mess up, but still repent. Still ask for forgiveness. Be humble in my sight. And so as we consider communion this morning, we're going to take it. I want you to think about the things that you struggle with. And instead of glazing them over or trying to act like they don't happen, say, Lord, I'm screwing up in this area and I don't know how to change. And I don't want to become so hard-hearted that I, you know, I have to act like I know who I am on the inside and act like everything's fine. And what communion does is it brings us back to the very beginning of our salvation. It brings us back to remembering that God, when he provided a sacrifice for us, he did it because he knew we'd need it. And, uh, and it gives us joy because even though we do still screw up, we realize that his sacrifice, his death on the cross was enough to forgive us of even our presumptuous sins. David, the only, the only difference between David and King Saul before him was that David repented. Saul didn't. He's like, I'm supposed to be good. What do I do? And instead of going to the Lord, he, he went to a sorcerer and said, hey, can you, can you start you know, going and finding Samuel the prophet? I want to make myself feel better. And uh, so my main point is, is we just need to keep going to Jesus daily. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Um, you know, I feel like I'm all over the place this morning, but I, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. That you don't expect us to be perfect. You just expect us to trust you. And so Lord, I, I pray that as we go throughout our daily lives, 
as we try to learn to trust you and as we fail at it, that you would keep us soft and tender to you. That our relationship with you would not uh, grow cold, but that we would trust you all the more. Father, I'm thankful that you're even willing to forgive me in the first place, that you even are willing to give me the time of day. So as we think about the things that we struggle with, as we think about your mercy, I just think about the theme of this book, the righteousness of God. And I think about the list of things that Paul's shown here. I'm religious by nature. I try to act like I'm something I'm not. And because of that, it spins me out. It stresses me out. And so, Lord, as we have the Word of God revealing to us how sinful we are, help us to bask in your righteousness. Help us to all the more thank you for how good you are and how willing to forgive that you are. Father, deal with each one of us on an individual basis. Show us where we lack. Help us to ask for forgiveness and to just rejoice that you, you do forgive us. Lord, as we uh, sing this song, I pray that you know, as we all come up and you know, we get the, the bread and the cup, as we get ready to take communion, Lord, help us to deal with the things that you're trying to deal with us this morning before we take it. Lord, help us not to take it unworthily. This isn't actually the blood and the, the bread or the, the body of Christ, but it is symbolic of what you've done for us. Help us not to take it unworthily. Help us to consider all that you've done, all that you're trying to do right now, and all that you will do in the future. And as we consider that, Lord, what do you want us to do to be obedient today? What are the things that we're failing at that we don't even realize? Lord, use this time for us to consider what you're trying to do in the future. And Lord, as you do that, I pray that we be convicted either to take new steps of obedience or to step back and, and deal with the disobedience of the past. Lord, you are good, you're merciful, and uh, you're forgiving, and I love that. So Lord, uh, just do business with us this morning, and uh, please hear our prayers and hear our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.